Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. That's what it was all about. It was just about infusing my food with soul. That was the differentiator. And then using my food for good. My parent company is called 99 Eats. And our mission is to spread love through food. The message and the feeling that you get all throughout it is this feeling of, of soul. It's this feeling of love. And ultimately, my whole goal is to bring you back to your grandma's kitchen. Um, just like I grew up in my grandmother's kitchen, the women of my family, my whole goal is to bring you back to the, and, and let you experience that moment through my food. Well, folks, today on the podcast, we've got a treat for you. We have on Darrell Smith, a former Syracuse University football standout. He was an excellent linebacker. In fact, he was known for causing havoc in the backfield, forcing turnovers uh, for the Orange. But today, he really has reinvented himself as a cook, uh, a culinary artist, if you will, on a show that blends preparing and enjoying great foods with telling stories that are representative of the Black culture. It's called Mad Good Food, and Darrell Smith is our guest here on the podcast. Darrell, thanks for making the time to join us. How are you doing? I'm all good, man. Thank you for having me. If, if someone had told you, you know, you're coming out of Philadelphia, you know, I, I've read your background story. We'll get into a little bit about why you chose Syracuse. But if somebody had told you, you were going to go from Philly to Cuse to now on the West Coast and have this culinary show, what would you have said? I mean, was this anywhere in your, your vision for your field of where you were going to go with your career? Absolutely not. I, uh, I grew up watching women in my family cook and also helping them in the kitchen. And so I always had uh, just curiosity when it came to food. And then I actually moved to Delaware for high school and I was Gatorade Player of the Year for Delaware um, and then came to Cuse from Delaware. And when I got to school, I would cook uh, Thanksgiving dinners for my teammates sometimes when we couldn't get the, when we didn't get to go home. And I don't know, like over the years, I just always practiced, always just kept like the mothers and the grandmas of my family in the back of my mind, like telling me how to do things. And as I got older, I became more curious and I had more time. When I got to the NFL, I had a little more money. And so I would just experiment with different foods. Fast forward, I, um, I'm in grad school at Syracuse actually after my NFL career is over. And I just come home one day and I make these meatballs. And I remember I had everything in the fridge for it, made them. And as soon as I did it, I called my best friend, like, yo, we got a winner. Told him to come over. He tried them. And I remember at that moment just saying, one day I'm going to sell this. And long story short, I moved to New York City and worked in advertising. And so I have a graduate degree in advertising, worked in advertising. And one day my boss came to work like, yo, you should enter this meatball competition. Because I would always (laughs) bring food to the office to keep my, uh, my teammates later. And so I entered the meatball competition and I win. First ever food competition in my life. And after that, I I started the LLC. I got us into something called Smorgasburg, which is a huge outdoor food market in Brooklyn. Mm. While I also worked in advertising, I'm fired from my job a few months later, then decide to take on Amazeballs now. Well, then it was 99 Meatballs, but I decided to take on my company full time. And now here, here I am five years later, uh, we've been in Barclays Center. We've been in Smorgasburg. I've done caterings all over New York City. I've, I've cooked around the world now. And um, it all started from a simple mes- recipe, simple meatball recipe and being fired from my job. 
it's a great story and, and really it goes to show you just you can you can plan and plan and plan but you got to be nimble and flexible with what opportunities are kind of thrown your way i want to go back to uh, childhood and the important role that food played so what were some of your favorite food items growing up and how did the strong women in your life really instill that love of food and and about food being more than just you know eating and the nourishment i think it was the soul and so um in my family, there were specific people who made specific things. So I, I vividly remember my cousin Lil, and she was like more more like a great cousin. Like she was my grandmother's uh, cousin, and she would make the greens, and only she was allowed to make the greens. And I remember my um, she taught my mom how to make them, and the recipe was so simple. Like it was just like olive oil, maybe a ham hock sometimes, and then just simmering it. But it was something special about the way she made it and the flavor that she was able to bring out. And I think that was just a testament to soul. Like every person in my family had a role and each person brought that soul to the dish. And I think, I don't know, like I, I started to see food in a different light, like more, more so than just ingredients. It was a way of self-expression because that's how Cousin Lil Greens were. You know what I mean, like she could take some simple ingredients and make something that was super unique to herself, just based off of the, I don't know, like just the soul that she put into it. And, um, and I think that was just, that was consistent throughout my life. I've always been around people who put soul into food. And that's, that's what I took away from it. And so when I got to college and when I, when I started my own company, that's what it was all about. It was just about infusing my food with soul. That was a differentiator and then using my food for good. Like for instance, my, my, my parent company is called 99 Eats and our mission is to spread love through food. And that, that's literally all it is. And so that, now that allows me to do all of these things where I'm in catering, um, I'm doing festivals, we're in Barclays Center because, and, and now I'm doing a show, but the message and the feeling that you get all throughout it is this feeling of, of soul, it's this feeling of love, and ultimately, my whole goal is to bring you back to your grandma's kitchen. Um, just like I grew up in my grandmother's kitchen, the women in my family, my whole goal is to bring you back to the, and, and let you experience that moment through my food. Did you, did you take to it right away? Were you there by your, you know, your, your cousin's side or your mom and your grandma's side, like actually cooking as a child? Or were you kind of more like eating the food and then you got into the culinary side of it later? I started off licking the cake bowl. So that was my first <laughs> guilty as charged. <laughs> yeah, man. My mom, she would uh she would let me lick the cake bowl and then I would have to wash the dish after that. So it was it was those two things. Like, here's the reward, and then here's I mean, like you gotta wash wash your dishes um and be accountable after that. And then as we got older, she would allow me to like stir things and she just brought me along slowly alongside her. She's also an excellent. My mom is an excellent cook. So most of the recipes that I learned are, are from her. But then, like I said, like everybody was was just in the kitchen. And so I got to watch. I, got, I just got to watch. Her. I would watch my grandma just stand over the, the stove or the, the sink and peel onions and cut them on her thumb. Like, like no cutting board. And just to watch something like that. Right. And then I got to watch. I got to watch my mom. I remember in the beginning, her cornbread tastes horrible like she made the worst cornbread and i just got to watch her work through it until now like every time i go home i have to have her cornbread 
like the, those little things. Like I got to see my grandmother, my grandmothers, and my mother progress, and my and the women in my family all progress over time, and and put the effort and the love into the food. And I don't know, man. I, I was I just became infused with it. Like that's all it was. And so I was by their side. I was next to them, and I also got to go through those trials with them. I got to taste it at each step. And it showed me so many different things, intangible things that I think I bring into food as well now. How about like the sense of, of patience that comes with food? Because you clearly, you can't rush the recipe. I mean, it's got to take its time to, to simmer, to cook, to make its way from the ingredients into the finished product. Was that easy for you to kind of pick up the patient skills or did you have to work on a bit of yourself to become more patient and wait for the process to play out? I think the beauty with cooking is that you have a little more control over the timing. And so while I'm, so for instance, while you're making tomato sauce or, or gravy, whatever you call it, I mean, like while you're making that, you're stirring, you're tasting, and usually you just let it simmer. Top off, I actually put mine in the oven, which is my own little secret, but I'll put my gravies in the oven um, to let that sugar caramelize. But you have a little more control. And so patience is more so, it's controlled patience versus like baking. I'm not... I'm not the best baker because I don't have that type of patience. Like I don't have the patience to follow a recipe, do science, and then wait for this thing to come out in X amount of time. My patience comes with just enjoying the process. Like I, I enjoy the process of stirring it. I enjoy the process of like adding one seasoning in the beginning and then waiting until later to add another seasoning. And so with cooking, I enjoy that process and I'm patient with, cooking if I can taste along the way and like do those type of things. But baking, nah, I'm not, I don't have that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I would say like <laughs> I've learned over time, um, but I also just learned what I enjoy. And I, I, when, I when I cook, man, it, if it takes me all day to make something, I'm willing to do it because I don't know, like I, I enjoy that type of patience. I've also heard that you have a penchant for not writing down your recipes. Is, is that true? Yeah, I mean, that, and that's an issue sometimes. Because, <laughs> like, I remember, like, Amazeballs, we would cater some companies. We did 290 orders once in two hours. Like, just rapid fire. We were at BuzzFeed. And I remember these people coming through. And it was just nonstop. Before, before we even opened, we had a line all the way around the office. Like, it was crazy. And I remember the first time i have gone there, I didn't have any, any written recipes. So I would literally go into the kitchen and prepare food like this off of, for 290 people just by, like, eyeballing it and, like, smelling it. Because after a while, you could smell how much salt you need. Like, if it's too little, too much, you could smell it. But it was all off of intuition and it was all off of soul. And now, like, obviously, I'm, I'm a little more wiser in the catering game. Where you, you can't really do that that much. But um, in the beginning, man, like, that's all it was. Like, it was literally just an extension of me. It was my form of self-expression. And, um, and, yeah, like, going back to the, the, to the previous question, I learned that type of thing from the woman in my family. Like, being able to just go in there and just dump yourself into the food. And so they get to taste a piece of you every time they eat it. Now, uh, I want to mention uh, the story you were talking about, you know, again, having the self-professed meatball master here. 
on the alumni podcast and you make those banging meatballs for your, for your best friend and your football teammate. How did that come to be? What was that recipe all about? And, and, and what was the, was that the seminal moment when you realized, you know, I really got a chance to make something special out of this? Yeah. I, I remember just coming home from class and I had a bunch like mad stuff in the fridge, like random things. Like I had like orange juice. It was like orange juice and original sauce. It doesn't have that now, but orange juice, um, and just random things, so much random stuff. And I would say that the sauce was the first thing that I made. So I have a sauce called the OG sauce. And the OG sauce, man, that sauce, you can put it on anything and it tastes good. And um, and and then the meatballs kind of went with that. So in the beginning, it was just that sauce. Like I never tasted sauce this good. And one day I'll have to like, y'all gotta try this stuff, it's, it's delicious. But the meatballs was a thing that I just took more time to perfect. And so over the years, that meatball recipe, it, it leveled up to that sauce. And then that's when I knew that I was ready to enter a competition because I liked it so much that I, that I knew that I could, it, w- it would be the best anybody ever tasted. And I mean, it, it proved itself true. So, and that, that really is a nice little segue um, into this, the current show that you're doing, which is just awesome, mad good food. It's a, it's a great Great uh, setup. It's a great series. And I love the fact that you, and we'll talk about the social justice movement for it too, but how challenging has it been for you to get this idea off the ground? What did it take? Pull back the curtain for us. How did you go from idea to execution with Mad Good Food? Well, I actually moved here November, or yeah, November of 2020. And um, Made and I, we filmed another show called Make This Tonight in the first week of December. And during lunch, they offered me the show. And they were like, we've, we've had a relationship the, the past three and a half years. And um, and they were just like, yo, like, we would love to offer your show. And I was just like, all right, cool. So then in January, we started planning it. And then by March, the second week of March, we filmed it. And then our last episode aired last week. And so it was just like, so fast, man. Like as soon as I landed from Brooklyn, we started working on the show. And I don't know, like it's, it's been so cool just to see the feedback. It's been cool to see and to, to receive messages from children and parents and just people who enjoy the show and parents telling me that now their child wants to be a chef because they finally see somebody on TV who looks like them. I don't know, man. It's been it's been beautiful because, like I mentioned earlier, it's all a part of the mission. My whole mission as a chef and as an entrepreneur is literally to just spread love through food. And now with this type of platform, going from catering, then going from stadiums and um, and festivals, and now being on TV, it gives me a platform in each of these lanes to just literally do what I love to do. Just just spread that love. And I think that the show is truly that. And I don't know, man, like I was able to come into the set every day and just feel so comfortable. And I think that the show, when you watch the show, you see that. You see me just being in my element, being able to teach you, being able to entertain you, and then being able to like give you some knowledge, man. Like people showing me the recipes that they're making, like just showing people how to do something that I wish somebody showed me how to do. And also showing people, um, a character and a person on TV that looks like them. 
Like that's what that's what I like. And also, I mean, even if you don't look like me, it's something for you. I mean, yeah. you can watch the show and you'll be entertained and you'll learn something and you'll you'll leave smarter and more full than when you started the show. And that's my goal. I'm glad you brought up the representation piece because it's so important for people to have, you know, the positive role models and representation through the cooking show. Just how important is it? Because I think that, you know, we talk about the cultural importance of food and there's, there's definitely stereotypes when it comes to, to you see a lot of the, the chefs on TV are, are Caucasian chefs and there haven't been as much of a rise in, in your black chefs having that representation, that presence, that's got to make you feel a bit of a sense of responsibility to, to pay it forward and try to get that next generation of awesome black chefs into, into the line of work. Absolutely. I think that um, there's some black chefs on TV, but I don't think that there is representation. Like you said, it's not enough. Like if I were to just watch TV, I would think that every single black chef is from the South and is a woman and, um, and just cooks the same type of food, right? Like that, that's, that is the, the narrative, I think, for black chefs now. And I think when now in this generation, you're starting to just see more, more people. And I want to be one of them. Like, I, I think that I'm one of them to, to now bring in this next wave and be like, no, like within our culture, there's so much diversity. There's so many styles of cooking. There's so many different ingredients and recipes within the diaspora. And I think that now through social media, through TV, through all of these platforms, you're starting to see more of that. And I'm blessed. I'm blessed to be one of those voices because I think that I bring something unique to the table. I bring a different story to the table. And I also just bring a different message and intention whenever I get on, on TV or any platform that I have that I think is unique to me. It's been interesting during the pandemic how we all have had, we've all been either forced to shelter at home, our communities have kind of been taken away from us. We've had to readjust and find communities in new places. And we, our eyes have been open with the social justice movements that have taken place um, due to what's happened with George Floyd and Jacob Blake. There's so many of these. It's unfortunate that we have to keep going through the, these protests, and, and, and but the eyes are being opened. I feel like you were getting more allies from the white community, from the Asian community, from the black community, people are really rallying together and trying to take a stance against these injustices. How are you able, Darrell, to take your drive for social justice and equality and, and, and tie it up with food and your role as a chef to accomplish those goals? Well, I think all those things are just a life's mission. Like as a black person, you don't, have, you don't really have a choice to come in at any moment and be like, all right, now, oh, you've opened my eyes now. Now, now you have my empathy. Like as a black person, this is our reality. And so I think that inherently your life's mission is to advance the, your people, especially if you are in some type of, I mean, if, if you are, yeah, like you, you advance your people. You know I mean, so like, that's my life's mission. Like my, my, my role in it, there, there are so many people with different roles, right? So, so you got, you got protesters, you have, you have poets, you have musicians, you have so many creative people using their creativity to their creativity to contribute to the overall goal of, of lifting our people out of everything we gotta be lifted out of and also combating the systems and the things put against us to keep us down here. And I think that my role is, is using food. 
like I said, to just use this food, food to spread love. That's my role. And so, for instance, when George Floyd was was murdered last year, they had um, there was this group called Fuel the People. And what they were doing is they were paying black chefs to cater protests. And they they reached out to me and and I was just I was making food. I mean, like just just fueling the revolution, like people walking outside. I was able to hire black in, in, in the city, Dominican people, black and Dominican people were helping me cook in the kitchen. And then I was feeding black people and basically everybody who was also trying to help our cause. And so I think things like that, like that's, that's what I'm all about. Like that's, that's how I go about things. That's how I work. That is, um, that's, that's who I am, man. Like I'm, I do this with a purpose. And so like, I, that's, that's what I am. So that's that's how it's powerful. Absolutely, yeah. Like this is real, and that's that's the way of making a difference too. I mean, because you know, you think about it. I wouldn't think that it's like, you know, you're, you're the people are out there taking the streets and they're trying to get the changes to be affected that they need to while well, they got to eat. There has to be somebody that brings them food. So the fact that you can step up there and bring fellow talented black chefs and, and bring people together to just prepare the food and deliver it to the people while they're delivering their message. I mean, man, that's a win win. But that's that's the intro to fight the power. Like what you what you seeing is that. Black people are we we coming together and we everybody's doing their part. Like we everybody's a team. Like we're we're coming together as a team and everybody is doing their part to literally fuel this revolution. My part is food, you got organizers, you, you got musicians, you have soundtracks to the revolution. Like it's it's just so many things that people are doing. And just my small part, man, like that's that's it. Like it, no matter what I have, no matter how much money I got no matter how much anything I got, no matter what, like I'm always going to do that because that, that is what I'm supposed to do. That is my, that is my, my mission. That is my responsibility to, to always uplift my people. I, I like the, um, the, the homage and the tribute that you pay to with the, the name of the show with mad good food. How did you come up with that as being the name of your cooking show? What well, was a collective effort? We, um, we just had like a list of names, like it's crazy to go to create a show like out of thin air, like uh, just out of thoughts. Um, and this is my first time ever doing it. And so literally every single thing about the show, it was a, com- a communal effort. Like we all just had lists of names. Then we la- we layered it to the, to the top three. And then there were these, the two names at the top, they went back and forth. One was more like cultural reference, but I think Mad Good Food uh, ended up being the name of the show because when you watch it, it it speaks it says that like if you watch the show i think that i am a good representation of the culture i think that the term mad good is uh borrowed from the culture and i remember when when we did choose this name me and the ep we had a very long conversation about the responsibility of borrowing something from black culture and then our responsibility in telling the stories to um, to validate us using that name. And I think that we did an excellent job in season one and we'll continue to do an excellent job moving forward because like I said, we set that intention up front that if we're going to name a show Mad Good Food, we have to, if we're going to b- and, and borrow that from the culture, we now have the responsibility 
to tell the right stories and to also just do the culture justice. And I think that I am, I'm an excellent representation of the culture because one of my story, but then two, because of my intention. And like I said, because I know what my responsibility is. And I think we, we just gonna keep, we're gonna keep just making it better and elevating it as we go. It's, it's heavy. Uh, it really is to think about how you're just living out your dream and you're passing on the message and you're connecting with, with people over these incredibly important topics. It's been so cool to get to hear your perspective and your passion for these topics blending together. I did realize I'd be remiss not to go back to the meatballs for a second because I asked you about them and you mentioned how popular they were. I don't even know what you put in the meatballs. So give us, give us the recipe. Make me hungry, Terrell. Tell me more about those famous meatballs of yours. So the, the thing about any meatball is you can't overwork the meat. Like the, the perfect meatball should be light and fluffy. It shouldn't be dense. And so when you think about that, obvious, not even obviously, it took me time to realize it, but you want to make sure that you have meat and then you also have seasoning for the meat, right? And so the seasonings that I use that go inside the meatballs are ricotta cheese, I'll use scallion. You got to have white onion for crunch. And then I'll use a ton of parsley, um, mustard, Worcestershire sauce, and then under 100 pounds. They usually will make over 100 pounds for most caterings of chicken beef. Tofu isn't over 100 pounds, but chicken and beef were well over 100 pounds. If it's under 100 pounds, you only really need one egg because all of those other things are binders. And, um, and then once you mix all of those things in one container, you, you salt your meat. So you salt the meat first and you make sure the salt is introduced to the actual meat. And then you start to fold in your seasoning ingredients lightly. So you put it in, twist it, and then you fold it into itself very lightly so we don't make a, a, a dense meatball. And then what I like to do is I'll put them into cupcake containers, right? So the thing about a cupcake container is that it steams the outside. And then if you cook it at a really high heat, which mine are at 425, season the top. You create a crust on the top and then you create like a, a steam on the bottom. And so now you, you are infusing your meatball, one with moisture because of the mix that we put into it. But then two, the way you cook it allows the inside to cook with steam. And that's what gives you a, a fluffy meatball. And it took me a long time to figure that out. But now I get to pass that time and that wisdom on to you. And I don't even use breadcrumbs. So like being in catering, you, you encounter a lot of people who are gluten, gluten free. And so I even found a way to take out the, the breadcrumbs in it and make it um, gluten free too. Now, that's just fantastic. Again, you're, you're really, our audience take notes on this because that recipe is just fantastic out there. You compare this too with, of course, I love your, your vodka sauce concept uh, that you have. It's, it's vodka-less vodka sauce, but tell us a little bit more about that. The OG is, is literally that. Like it tastes like a vodka-less vodka sauce, sweet and spicy vodka-less vodka sauce. And that is, it's not too many ingredients, but it's just some time. Like the best way to cook tomatoes is with time. And that OG, I dedicated a lot of time to making that the way it is. And, um, I don't know. It's, it's just comforting, man. Like it's, it's every single thing you want in a sauce. And then you couple that with literally the best meatball that you'll ever eat. You have the chef's kid. You, you got that. <laughs> That's what it is. It's literally that. You, you don't have, even can't say words. It's just. 
Now, I'd be, I also want to take a little trip down memory lane, Darrell, and talk about your connections of coming to Syracuse. You mentioned you, know, you grew up in Philly, you moved to Delaware, you're the Gatorade Player of the Year, you forged this amazing career as a talented linebacker for the Orange. What was it about Syracuse that called to you? I don't know, man. It was the energy. But it was just a feeling. I remember going to Syracuse and feeling like I belonged there. And on my official visit, I didn't have a scholarship. Um, and so when I went home, I still didn't have a scholarship. And uh, signing day was approaching. And while I was on the phone with the Naval Academy, so I was going to go to Navy, Syracuse called me on the other line and offered me a scholarship. So I literally clicked over, hung up with Navy, accepted the scholarship with Syracuse and had to call Navy back and tell them that I wasn't coming anymore. And, and as soon as I stepped on campus, man, it just felt like home. Like the, the city of Syracuse reminded me of like growing up. I mean, one of my best friends is from right down the street from the campus. And I was always, I always had the opportunity to connect with the community. And so I'm, I always just felt a part of Syracuse. And then, I don't know, Syracuse is such a, it's such a blue collar town. And the people are so, so connected to the sports teams that you feel a part of the community when you're there. You know, like, I can't really explain it. And then even when you leave Syracuse, the people who graduated from Syracuse are some of the most passionate and uh, just willing to help. They're, they're just those type of people where if you have Syracuse on your resume, you you, you at least get an interview or you at least get a phone call with anybody who's graduated from a school just because it has that much love. And I think that when I stepped on campus, before I even got to Syracuse on my official visit, that's what I felt. And it, I mean, it's, it's been true ever since. Like literally, like I said, I just got off the phone with Syracuse right before this call to do something with the athletic department. And so, man, I'm, I'm, I'm diehard Syracuse, I bleed orange. And I think that statement, bleeding orange, is literally what we do. Like the people who are this invested in it, this is what we do. And it's just a feeling that you get when you when you just are or in that on that land, man. It's, it's something about it. And there's something about playing in the loud house too, when the place is really oh, yeah. and describe the feeling for us of you know what it's like walking out there on a game day. You got all the the kids, you got the student section, you got the marching band. I mean, that place is going ballistic from a player. What are you taking in? It's energy. Like I, um, there's nothing like the dome. Like we play, we played at Penn State. We played at Notre Dame. We played at West Virginia in a packed stadium. We played Washington. We played Iowa in a night game, yellow, yellow out, um, with the stands like this far from the sidelines. And there's nothing like the dome when it's rocking. Not even when it's rocking. You could have a half-filled dome and it's loud. But when the dome is at full capacity, you can literally stand on the field and it'll shake. Like it'll feel like you're in an earthquake and, and nobody can hear anything. And um, that's what it's like, like that energy. If you can imagine what that feels like, if you can imagine just feeling a feel shake and feeling as if you are, um, you are backed up by the people in the stands. Like the people in the stands are just as involved in the game as you. And they just bring you up to a different level. And I think that my junior and senior year, so my first three years I was with Greg Robinson. 
And um, those were those were pretty down years. Like our record wasn't really good. We had a ton of talent, but our record didn't really reflect that. And I think when Doug Marone came back, he was the guy who was man. Doug Marone was the man. Like he he was a Syracuse grad. He he brought back the tr tradition of the football team. He um, he taught us like we, we had like burning of the shoe. Every time we won a, a, a conference game, we went to varsity and like flipped the banner. And so little things like that, he infused that Syracuse spirit in us. And I think that the whole team now became just a unit. And it, I was, like I said, I mean, I was just blessed to be a part of that. And then another thing with him is I was in grad school my senior year on the football team. And I got to watch him take, he handled it like a business. Like everything I was learning in class, I would come to practice and I would just watch Doug Marone's moves. And I, I was able to learn what I would like apply what I was learning in school and then watch him actually do it and get our team to where we were when we left off and then beyond that. And, um, man, I was, I was just, I was honored to play for him. Like it was, it was such an honor to play under him. Well, it's great too to hear the uh, instilling of the traditions because I never know how much the current student athletes know about the proud history and hearing you talk about the burning of the shoe and going to the varsity and you're flipping over the flags after the win, that's got to make you want to play even harder. Oh yeah. Because now like, I don't know, like it's, it's a different connection that you now have with the people who came before you because now you know that they went, they did the same rituals and they did the same things that you do. And so I think it just strengthens that bond. And so when Doug Marone came back, he he gave us meaning to these things. He like sat us down and educated us on the history of Syracuse. He talked about his experiences with Coach Coach Mack. You know what I mean? So like just being able to to learn that history. And I think with Syracuse, that is our thing. Our thing is turning over the jerseys and going to varsity, which is like a staple, you know, or and going to Marshall Street. Our thing is doing a burning of the shoe because like everybody before us threw their old shoes into the fire and it, and it represented something. And so now we could draw that energy from the people before us. And when we were on the field, it was some games that we shouldn't have won that we won because of that. You know what I mean? Just because of that, that heritage and being like, you know, the people before us did this. There's no way we can, we can let them down. And so I think that it just gave you a little extra oomph um, when we were on the field especially in those last two years when I was there. And like I said, man, I was, I was blessed to, to have a coach like him because even now, like some of the lessons that I learned, I apply to entrepreneurship and just the way I move as a businessman and as a, as a, um, and now is, is like a show host and what, how I, how I communicate to people, what I say to people using my platform to actually like say something versus just like using it. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, man, I'm blessed. I'm gonna keep saying that, man. I can I can tell, and I, I love your humility. I love the fact that you're so you're so grounded and yet still wanting to, you know, you realize the perspective that you have, how how blessed you are. I'm sure there's a lot you can choose from. What's your favorite football memory from Syracuse? We uh we played Rutgers, and it was my senior year, and we had to beat Rutgers to go to a bowl game. We had never been to a bowl game, and I remember um the whole game, like I remember watching the film 
And we went over and practiced, and this dude, like, he was killing us. They had this freshman wide receiver he wore for, like, 218 yards, all plays up the middle. And during the game, I really didn't see it. But then after the game, I watched the film, and I was like, man, a lot of those plays were because I did the wrong thing. And at the end of the game, they they were down maybe two points. I think they were down two points with a few minutes to go. And I blitzed, and I fell, and I crawled to sack the quarterback. And then the next play, the field goal kicker came in and missed the field goal by like a few feet and, or inches. And I don't even think it was feet. And I remember being like, damn, like that was that – that was probably the biggest play of my career. And it helped us go to the bowl game because after he mixed, missed that field goal, we went down and scored and we won the game and then ultimately went to a bowl game and won that bowl game in, in New York City after a freaking blizzard and the Nor'easter. <laughs> and so like that whole story, man, like I helped us, I helped us. Like I, I, I did my part in getting us there. And then I remember that game, man, our offense went off. Marcus Sales and Ryan Nassib, like, had a crazy day. Um, and the offense just did their thing. And it was just so wild, man. Like, it was, it was so wild. Because I remember coming as a freshman, even though I love Syracuse, I would fall asleep in every single football meeting. There was no way that I could stay awake to the point where, like, my teammates would, like, like have stuff and, like, hit me with it during the meeting. Like, boy, wake up. And then for my senior year to be a captain and to – to do my part in leading the team to victory, it was no sweeter feeling. And you know what I mean? Like nobody before that had the opportunity to come home with a ring. And yeah, man, I, I got to get a ring. And it was just, it was cool. Like it was the ultimate, it was the ultimate ending to a career at Syracuse that I'll never forget. And, and forging relationships with brothers that I'll always have. Yeah, absolutely. A special bond. And you guys get to go to Yankee Stadium and win the Pinstripe Bowl and bring Syracuse back to Revelance out there, you know, really getting the team back on the map. And and I know it's, it, it's, it's got to be tough because you made sacrifices. You were a running back near in the Gatorade Player of the Year honors in high school. And then, you know, coming over to Syracuse to switch over to a linebacker. And you did that for the team, I'm sure, because the team had a need, right? Like it, I read the story about Lendale White and, and you know, trying to get trying to bring those types of bigger running backs into Cuse. And then you saw an opportunity, right, to kind of step in and take over a linebacker. Yeah, I remember they brought me in. We had DeLon Carter. Me and DeLon were the same year. DeLon was Mr. Ohio. He was he, he was a born running back. DeLon was supposed to be a running back. He was so good. And um, we were supposed to be like the Reggie Bush and Lindell White thing. And my freshman year, I stayed at running back for like a few weeks. Then they moved me to safety. They moved me to DN. Um, they, they would move me to outside backers, hybrid, safety. And then my second year, the line went down. He broke his – he, like, he dislocated his hip. I moved back to running back for, like, two weeks. And then I went back to DN, like, did some linebacker. And then after that, it was just solidified that I would be linebacker. But like I said, man, I came there as an athlete and just to do my part to help the team. And after a while, like, when you move from running back, obviously running back gets all of the glory, especially in college. Quarterback and running back, if you're a really good wide receiver. But the thing about linebacker and defense in general is that running backs have to come off the field. Like, usually you got a three running back location, ro rotation, two to three running back rotation. 
Whereas that linebacker, man, I was on the field every single play. And so once I realized that and the impact that I could have um, by always being on the field, I was like, you can have that running back. I kind of like this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take this, uh, this defense thing. Um, and then when I moved to middle linebacker, I was basically like, I became like the quarterback of the defense. And so for me, I was I always like, I like being in those positions because I think just as a person, I can handle that type of responsibility and do my part in uplifting the people around me in that leadership role. So I was probably bitter about moving from running back for like maybe a couple of weeks until I realized the ability and the power of the position that I was moved into. Well, and to give our audience a little insight too, uh, Darrell's career went beyond uh, Syracuse. You had a couple cracks at the NFL, including with the Houston Texans. And I know that you suffered a couple of injuries and you had some injuries your last couple of years at Houston too, that I'm sure it took a toll on you, but I want to commend you for the fact that you came back to Newhouse and you got your master's while you're still trying to track down those NFL dreams. That is not easy to juggle both those heavy responsibilities. Sure. That was, that's hard. <laughs> and, and playing um, senior year while in Newhouse. Newhouse is, Newhouse is the best for a reason. Like they are the top, uh, they're the top creative school in my opinion for a reason. And the people in Newhouse, it would be like whatever the top football team, Alabama. You know what I mean? Like they're the Alabama of academics where every single person in there is so good that you have to up your level. And so when you got to up your level like that in school and then also up your level on the football field because you got a goal of winning the bowl game, that was, that was, a, that was a hard time. But, like, I can look back on it now – and I've learned so much, like just from just from being in grad school and having that type of exposure to professors. Like that is the piece that I found so valuable. Um, and that is the piece that I carry along with me now because I was able to, to just soak up so much wisdom from everybody in Newhouse. And then being in the NFL, even though my career was so short, I don't know, like I don't really look at it as a, um, a loss because – I was able to soak up so much wisdom from professionals. And these are these professionals just so happen to be the best professionals at what they do in the in the entire world. And looking back on my NFL experience, that's what that was for. Because like I said, I, I take everything I learned from grad school, I take everything that I learned from being in meetings with Brian Cushing and Mario Williams and D'Amico Ryans. And then my second year, they moved me to fullback and I'm in the meeting room and blocking for Arian Foster and Ben Tate. And I'm in a huddle with Andre Johnson and Owen Daniels and just watching all of these players move. Um, Jonathan Joseph, you know what I mean? Like, it was crazy that that locker room and just seeing how true, great professionals move. And I was able to just soak all that up. And when when I moved to New York City and worked in advertising, now I got to I got to also steal a little bit of wisdom from the creative community and and just toss it all in this little pot and here I am and um <laughs> and now I get to still just use all of that that knowledge that wisdom that experience and apply it to my life and I, I just never stopped because I started with a mission and why I was doing it first before I did anything so if you take anything away from this 
Just remember those things. And start with what with the why and do what you love because love exists within love, man. Well, that help you. Yeah, I know we've been blessed to uh, to have your perspective here on the podcast, uh, sharing your insights. Again, the show is Mad Good Food. It's a fantastic, it's it's visually entertaining. You'll learn some great recipes for yourself and you'll hear some really great stories, especially about black culture getting represented from Darrell Smith out here on the podcast. We really appreciate your time and listen, wish you nothing but the best moving forward. No doubt, brother, man. Go check it out on tastemade.com. It's on, um, you can download it on TV, on all the devices. It's on like Google Chrome. Uh, Roku, I believe. But anywhere you can find Taste Me, check it out. There's also clips up now on YouTube. So watch it. It's, it's so cool. And share it. It's a, it's a really good show. And I'm, I'm excited to can continue to make it. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast. <laughs>